0: Accepting help can be a humbling experience. Um, To admit you can't do something, that can be difficult, maybe especially for us guys, seems to be the case. However, sometimes to not accept help can just lead you into more trouble. I was in Sydney the other day and saw one of those mobile handyman vans zipping around on the roads, and on the side of the van it said, ''We repair what your husband fixed.'' Rude, I thought, Um, although to be honest, I think Sue has them on speed dial now. (laughs) Accepting help can be humbling, but today's passage is all about accepting help from God. Now, you may not have realised you needed help from God, but at the risk of offending you, uh, you do. We all do. That's because in the Bible, God consistently says that none of us are good enough to deserve eternal life Uh, we actually don't treat God well enough to deserve that we don't treat him with the obedience or the reverence or the respect that is due to him and if anything we deserve to be punished by him but in this morning's passage God offers to save us from that punishment if we would simply accept his help. Now at first that's a little difficult to see in today's passage because it's a bit of a long and complicated one. We just heard read the first thirteen verses of chapter 49. But I'd actually like us to think all through chapter the whole of chapter 49 and into chapter 50 as well. And the way these two chapters operate is that there are they're a bit like a play where different people are talking at different times. The difficulty, though, is we're never quite sure as to who it is who's doing the talking. So with most plays, you know, Romeo and Juliet, for example, you get all these instructions, enter Romeo, exit, Juliet, and then you get the person's name printed in the text to say who's saying what. You know, good night, good night, parting is such sweet sorrow. We know that's Juliet speaking because her name's there. This bit of Isaiah... (coughs) Sorry about the coughing during the talk. This bit of a sigh is as if there's a play going on, but all the labels have been dropped out. And so we've got all these voices speaking, but it's sometimes a little tricky to figure out whose voice it is. Well, to try and help us, on the outline, I've put in who the speakers are over these two chapters. Essentially, it starts with the Lord's servant speaking, He then gets interrupted by Zion, which is the voice of Israel. God responds to Israel, and then finally the servant picks up where he left off before he got interrupted. And it's then that we reach the punchline of the whole section, a punchline which is about an offer from God to help us. Let's see how it pans out. The first speaker we have is the servant. The verses we just heard read, they are often referred to as the second servant song, in the book of Isaiah, as that mysterious servant who we first met in chapter forty-one is suddenly back again, and immediately we should be feeling a little bit of anticipation here, because remember this servant is huge. We first met him in chapter forty-one. He appeared out of nowhere, <coughs> but he was—he appeared to establish God's justice in all the earth. He would do it graciously, unswervingly, and with deep conviction and involvement with God himself. Well, the servant again appears out of the blue. Some of the same things that we've already heard about him are said again. Again, it's stressed that he'll have a close connection with God. Verse 1. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Intriguing little description. This servant virtually has been handcrafted by God like a polished arrow, just right for the task. But then God has hidden him away in his quiver so, that, so as to bring him out at just the right time. <coughs> Verse 4, however, adds something new to the picture of the servant because it is now suggested for the first time that this servant is going to meet opposition in his mission. And the servant even talks about feeling like giving up, verse 4. But I said, I've laboured to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. See, this servant almost feels like he's giving, should, uh, feels like giving up here, doesn't feel like he's getting anywhere, but here's the real thing, in humble dependence on God, he presses unswervingly on. And so God goes on to tell him that because of this servant's faithfulness, a time is coming when he will be revered. And even though he's going to go through a period of rejection, a time of vindication is also coming a time when kings and princes will acknowledge who he really is. Look at verse 7, for example. (coughs) This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now this is a bit of a new revelation about this servant. He will be despised and abhorred by the nation, the nation, that is the nation of Israel, but ultimately come time, even kings will bow down before him. This is related to another second new thing that we see in this second servant song, and that is that by staying faithful to God, even in the face of opposition, this servant will not just help Israel, he's here to help everyone. Verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now back in chapter 41, it was also mentioned that the servant was a light to the Gentiles, but here it's getting even more emphasis. This servant is too big to contain himself to just Israel. He's going to do stuff that will bring salvation to to everyone. And so by the time you reach the end of this, this servant song verse 13, the whole earth is rejoicing over this one. All of which makes this servant even more mysterious and magnificent. Think about it. Despite being despised and rejected by Israel, this servant will stay faithfully reliant on God for help. And as a result, he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And he will be ultimately vindicated. We are, of course, reading about Jesus, aren't we? Uh, back in chapter 41, when we first met this servant, we thought about the fact that he was a puzzling figure. The Jews couldn't figure out who he was. But when you hit the New Testament, they fall over themselves to tell us that this servant is Jesus. And here again, what we're reading of this servant fits Jesus to a T. Jesus came and was despised by the nation. Israel rejected him, put him to death on a cross, and yet God ingeniously used that death on the cross to bring salvation to the ends of the earth as Jesus took the punishment of his people on himself and afterwards he was raised to life, vindicated, seated at the right hand of God and every knee come time will bow before him. And here it is written hundreds of years before Jesus even entered the world. All put down by Isaiah to display God's genius and plan to help us. But as extraordinary as that is, I want us to quickly keep moving on to capture the sense of the the play that's happening in these two chapters. Because what happens now (coughs) is that Zion interrupts the servant with a bit of an outburst. Verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Now, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. That's the capital city of God's, of Israel. And so Zion speaking, it's an image of Israel speaking. And they interrupt the servant with a complaint that God has deserted them, forgotten them. Where's that coming from? Well, it's not really 100% clear. It could be that they don't like the idea of this coming judgment of uh, Babylon that's been talked about, even though for the last um, 14 chapters God's been talking all about the comfort that will happen to them after the judgment, the the forgiveness of sins that will be possible after that. It could be, perhaps, that they don't like the idea of this servant now bringing salvation to the ends of the earth and not just Israel. Maybe they feel that loses their specialness to God. Certainly when Jesus was on earth, one time he mentioned taking salvation to the Gentiles and the Jews in the synagogue got so angry with him, they tried throwing him off a cliff. Whatever the case, this outburst sets up a very powerful contrast between the servant and Zion, if you think about it. The servant, despite opposition stays faithfully reliant on God for help. Zion, because they don't like the way God does things, they complain. Well, God himself now responds. Verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Zion may feel forgotten, but God says it's exactly the opposite. They are never never out of his mind. He can't forget them more than a mother can forget that they've had a baby. And so it is that God now enters this really long speech, all the way into chapter 50, where he puts all these images together so as to affirm to them his tireless commitment towards them. What he also points out to them, though, is that even though he's been committed to them, the real problem is Israel's unresponsiveness to him. Chapter 50 now, verse 1. (coughs) Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? See, they get the point. Israel feel that they've been forgotten and forsaken. It's because... They've forgotten and forsaken God. He's never stopped thinking of them. He's never stopped wanting to bless them. The whole reason the servant is on the scene now, remember, is to restore the tribes of Jacob and spread salvation to the ends of the world. And yet what keeps happening in terms of Israel is that when God comes offering help, no one bothers answering the door. When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? See, it's not that God doesn't want to rescue Israel, not that he can't. It's just that they don't seem to want to be helped. All of which now sets the scene for the servant to again resume his speech, again to tell us about suffering that he's going to go through, and again to further amp up this contrast between the servant and Israel. That whereas Israel has a track record of refusing God's help, The servant sees God's help as what will eventually save and vindicate him. Chapter 50, verse 4. The servant again resumes. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, because the Sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who then will bring charges against me. Let us face each other, who is my accuser, let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he who that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Again, with the hindsight of the New Testament, this is a very vivid description of Jesus' experience, isn't it? The mocking, the spitting, the disgrace, the beating, it's all what Jesus went through. The personal resolve, the setting of his face like flint, the confidence in God despite the opposition, the looking to his heavenly father for final vindication. It's all Jesus. Again, written hundreds of years before Jesus entered the world. But in particular, here's the thing to notice, that here in Isaiah, it's being told to us here so as to build this contrast between the servant, who even in the midst of suffering, looks to the sovereign Lord for his help, and Israel, who will not look to God for help. And it all leads to the final punchline as the servant now says to us, the reader, who are you going to be most like? Are you going to accept God's help when he comes knocking? Or are you not? Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of your servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That last phrase is pretty much the only command in these entire two chapters. It's the punchline of this whole play. Trust in the name of the Lord, rely on God. And notice in the beginning of that verse that this trust and reliance is described in terms of fearing the Lord and obeying the words of the servant. In other words, accepting God's help involves submitting to God's authority. Accepting the servant's help involves submitting to the servant's authority. Which might seem a humbling thing to do. But to not accept the help, that will put you in even more disaster. Verse 11. But now, all all you who light fires... And provide yourselves with flaming torches. Go walk in the light of your fires. And of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you will see from my hand. You will lie down in torment. It's a very vivid image. There's the choice. Get help from the Lord and his servants. Submit to them. Look to them for light in the darkness. Or reject the offer. Light your own fire for light. And you will lie down in torment. Now these two chapters have a few ins and outs to them. But in the end point it's very clear. Step back again. It starts with the servant saying that he's come to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And he will do it by relying on God's help even if it means him being despised. What becomes apparent, however, in the interchange between Zion and God that interrupts him is that Israel are not interested in accepting God's help at all. They are failing to answer when God comes calling. And so the servant sums it up by reminding us again that he does look to God for help and, uh, and urging us, the reader, to make a choice as to who are we going to be like, him or Israel. And you've got this vivid image of being in the dark, of desperately needing light to find your way out, and the servant is urging us, the readers, to be like him, to obey him, and to rely on light and help from God, because to not do that, to think you don't need the help, to instead light your own fire, will end in disaster. Because remember, we do all need help. None of us deserve eternal life. But God offers to save us through the servant who brings salvation to the ends of the earth if we would just submit to him and accept his offer for help. And so this morning, a passage like this, I must ask you, have you done that? Have you accepted help from God and his servant? Do you fear the Lord and obey the words of his servant? Or in the imagery of verse 11, are you still running around holding up flaming torches of rebellion for your own light? Maybe you've been around church all your life, but you have never actually personally talked to God, submitted to him, and accepted his offer of help. And you know in your heart of hearts you don't fear God. Maybe you're still living in the false hope that you don't need help, that you're good enough to get a place in heaven, despite God repeatedly telling us that we're not. It can be humbling to accept help. But whatever your situation, if you've been putting it off or never done it, don't put it off any longer. In the 80s in America, an American uh, radio station reported the story of a stolen car in California. Uh, police were staging this massive search for the vehicle and the person who had stolen it even to the point of putting advertisements on the radio station to contact the thief, hopefully who might have been listening to the radio in the stolen car. It's because on the front seat of the stolen car was a box of crackers which, unknown to the thief, had been laced with poison. The car owner had intended to use these crackers back at his house as rat bait. And so now the police and the owner of the car were actually more interested in obtaining the thief to save his life rather than recover the car. And so often when we run away from God and we refuse to submit to him and we think to ourselves that submitting to God and obeying the words of his servant, we somehow think that 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 would just make life boring All we're really doing is eluding a rescue. Don't elude it any longer. This morning I'm going to finish by talking to God and thanking him for his servant Jesus. I'm going to thank God for his offer of help. Um, You might like to pray quietly along with me. You might like to pray especially if you've never personally prayed this sort of prayer before. I'm going to pray now. Let's pray. Dear God, I admit that you are right and I do need help. I don't deserve anything from you except to be punished. But God, you have promised that your servant Jesus, would bring salvation to the ends of the earth by dying for our sin. And so I humbly accept your offer of help and forgiveness. I am astonished that you would do that for me, but I gratefully accept it. Thank you so much. And please, God, from this day forward, I want to serve you to the best of my ability. As you have said in your word this morning, please help me to reverently fear you and obey the words of your servant Jesus. Thank you that he came to help. I accept it. Amen.